Hey there, drone fans. Welcome back to episode three of the Drone Valley podcast. In this week's installment, we'll start with a discussion about virtual reality versus augmented reality goggles. I'll explain the differences between them and give you some pros and cons of each technology so you can make the right decision if you decide to start flying FPV. I'll then do a deep dive on portable battery bank solutions and explain why it's really important you bring a portable battery bank when you're out flying for the day. And I'll give you all the nerdy details you'll need to understand the new technologies that are out around USB-C and quick charging standards. And then finally, we'll answer the burning question of the week, where did the 400 foot limit for quads come from? So stay tuned and we'll get started. In this first section, I'd like to discuss the differences between virtual reality and augmented reality gear because I am so excited by the potential that both of these technologies have to really enhance every aspect of our lives. And I can tell you that there are big companies all over the world throwing tons of money at this segment because they really believe that it's disruptive enough that it's going to change the way we live. So let me spend a few minutes talking about the differences between them. Then I'll give you some pros and cons for both technologies because they both work, but they're similar and different in some ways that are kind of important. Then finally, I'll relate it to flying your drone using virtual or augmented reality because I own goggles for both sets of those and the experience is cool with both of them, but it's a little bit different. So when I discuss my experiences with it, maybe that'll help you decide which one works for you. So let's start with virtual reality. The concept of virtual reality is really simple. It basically is going to take your experience, your visual audible experience, and transport you somewhere else. So essentially what you're going to do in today's world is you're going to put a set of goggles on that come down over your eyes, and maybe you've got a set of headsets that are included in that, and you're going to now be viewing a different reality. And that could be a computer game, it could be flying your quad, but I tell you, when you put those goggles on, you immediately shift into that reality. It's a totally immersive experience, and it can be unsettling if you haven't done it before. And I guarantee you, if you're playing a video game where there's zombies coming at you, you're gonna be swinging at the air because they, they look like they're right there in front of you. Imagine flying your quad using a set of VR goggles. You've got those goggles on, and you're immediately transported into the cockpit of that quad. So you've got a quad that's flying 35 miles an hour, 200 feet in the air, above a beautiful beach or a forest, and you're in that quad. I mean, it's, it's a totally life-changing experience. So it's something you definitely want to experience. And virtual reality has gone through a lot of iterations. I mean, it started way back in the early 1900s. And back then, their concept of virtual reality was a viewer you'd look through, and they had these sort of photographic plates of famous places around the world. And people didn't travel a lot back then, so they would bring in pictures of France or pictures of the Grand Canyon. And they would actually have parties where they'd have these viewing parties where you'd look through this lens and have two photographs behind it that were slightly offset and gave you like a three-dimensional view. Now, that wasn't really pure virtual reality, but it did kind of transport you to France because you're looking at the Eiffel Tower or the Arc de Triomphe or whatever through those goggles or through that lensing and really changed your perspective. It altered your reality. Now, later on, when I was a kid, they came out with a thing called a Viewmaster, which I thought was brilliant, which was this plastic thing that you'd look through and you had to hold it up to a light and there was a disc that fit inside there and it did the same thing. And they had ones with cartoons, they had ones with dinosaurs and ones with famous places. And as a kid, I was fascinated by that because I'm sitting in my room, but I'm looking at things that are just blowing me away. I've got dinosaurs that are 30 feet tall that look like they're standing in front of me. And of course, I had, I had to take the thing apart and figure out how it worked, but that was my version of virtual reality. So now we fast forward to today where you've got these sophisticated goggles you put on that are incredibly intense experiences. Now, there are a couple of different flavors of them, and I'll talk about that once I get through the augmented reality. So that's virtual reality. 
Old Mint Reality is sort of the same, but a little bit different because it has the virtual aspect to it, but instead of it being a totally immersive experience, you're actually looking through a set of glasses. So on the virtual side, you've got things like Oculus Rift and you've got the uh, Halo lenses coming from Microsoft. On the augmented side, uh, technologies like the Google Glass, which came out, I don't know, a decade ago, which I thought was tremendously cool technology and didn't really go over well with the public. I still think they're going to come back. But with augmented reality, you're not putting a set of headsets on. You're looking through a set of lenses because you're seeing what's in front of you, but it's enhanced. So it's augmenting or enhancing that reality with other information. Now, in the case of flying a drone, that could be an FPV view through your camera. It could be telemetry information about how the quad's performing, how far away it is, how high it is. You get to decide that depending on the application you're using. Now, for me personally, I, I fly with both. Maybe it's because I'm an older guy, but that virtual reality experience after a while gives me vertigo. So I can't use them for more than 30 minutes and I've got to sit down and take them off. With the augmented reality, I can use those all day long because I'm looking at the quad and I've got all the extra information I need sort of slightly looking down and I can see that. So I love the augmented reality, but it's something you have to test for yourselves. Now I will tell you, if we go back to the virtual reality for a minute, there's a bunch of ways you can implement virtual reality. So you can buy goggles, and there are a lot of companies out there that build these goggles that everything in them, or you can buy simple goggles that you can use your phone with. So if you wanna buy an inexpensive pair of virtual reality goggles, um, you can get them for 40 bucks, 30 bucks, 20 bucks, and basically the less expensive one your phone is the projector. So you basically slide your phone inside of it. Inside that headset, there's a set of focusing lenses and you can look through those lenses at your phone and the application will split the image that it's showing into a stereoscopic view. So there'll be two screens that are slightly offset to give you that 3D effect when you put that headset on. And that works really well. It's not as good as some of the dedicated headsets, but it's a great way to get started. So if you're thinking about getting into virtual reality, look at some of those less expensive headsets and use an application like Lychee or some of the other apps that do that stereoscopic viewing, and it'll give you a good feel for it. And if you like that, then you can step up to some of the more dedicated goggles. Now, if we're talking DJI, they've got the DJI goggles, two different versions of those and those are a totally immersive experience with a, with a high quality screen inside of it so with the more expensive goggles you actually get a projection screen inside two screens actually that could be like full 1080p resolution and that gives you like a crystal tack sharp picture of what you're seeing and again it is such a cool experience because you feel like you're flying the quad so that's virtual reality. With augmented reality, you can buy the, the glasses from a bunch of different companies. Epson makes a really nice pair that I fly with. Um, they're fairly expensive, but those are the ones that I use when I fly most often. And I like those because I can also get corrective lenses. So my, my eyesight's not that great and I've got glasses. You can have those lenses cut to your particular prescription, which makes it an easier experience to get used to. But those are the two differences. Either of them work really well. And my suggestion would be if you've never done it, borrow a set. If you fly with a club, somebody's got one or friends got them. Borrow a set and try them because flying it, looking at a controller is cool. Putting on a set of headsets and flying FPV is a whole different game. It's a completely different experience. And some of the more sophisticated headsets even have the ability to control where the camera looks. So you can not only fly it, but control where the camera looks. Now, a couple of things I wanna say before we end this segment. One of them is sort of a, a caution that today, if you're using virtual reality goggles, whether they're the fully immersive experience, you can't fly those without a spotter because the FAA mandates that you have to have a visual line of sight to your quad. You always have to have it in, in your eyesight and the goggles don't count. So if you're flying with the virtual reality goggles, one of the downsides is you have to have a spotter with you. And the way I handle that is I'll go out with my son or a friend and I'll fly a battery 
then I'll give him the headset, let him fly a battery, then I'll take it back and fly a battery. So we kind of trade off that way and both of us get a chance to fly. Plus it gives me a good 30 minutes to regain my balance after being struck with vertigo flying with those goggles. If you're flying with virtual reality goggles, that's the case. If you're flying with augmented reality goggles, you don't need a spotter. So that's a pro over there. You can actually put them on, you can see your quad, and you still get the benefit of having that extra information around the outsides of it. And one last pitch I'll give you outside of the quad space is that, especially the augmented reality side, I really believe that technology is going to blow up because I've been involved with companies that are developing applications that will enhance other aspects of our lives outside of flying the quad. And that's why I'm so excited about this technology. For example, there's a company that makes an application where a worker on an assembly line or somebody repairing a tractor can put on a set of those augmented reality goggles, walk up to the tractor, and the service that's needed on the tractor, maybe it needs a filter change or it's got to have some lubrication on some of the joints, will light up red. So they know immediately what needs to be done. And maybe they don't know how to change that oil filter. They can then look at it, tap the side of the goggles, and it brings up the page from the manual that tells them how to remove it, how to put the new one in, and even the shelf location where that replacement part is located, all the information they need to do the work. So to me, that's just, it changes things. It enhances us as human beings. It makes life easier. So I love this technology tremendously. I fly with it on my quad, and not every time, but 30% of the time I've got a set of goggles or I've got my AR glasses on and I'm just loving that experience. So again, my recommendation is if you haven't done it, they're different, try them both. And I, I think you'll settle on one that works with you. Borrow one from a friend before you go crazy and buy a thousand dollar set of goggles. But it's definitely something you want to experience for sure if you're flying a quad. One of the most common questions I get from other flyers is, Rick, do you use a portable battery bank when you go out to fly for the day? And when I say yes, I do, the next question invariably is, how big, what model, you know, what brand do you like? So it's a hard question for me to answer because everybody's got different needs. What I'm trying to charge might be different than what you're trying to charge. So it's hard for me to say, this is the perfect battery bank, but I can give you some coaching because battery banks can run the gamut from inexpensive ones that you can charge your phone with once, all the way up through you know, cinder block size ones that could support an entire family's camping trip for seven days out in the wilderness. And which one you pick really depends on, again, what you're charging, how long you're going to be out in the field. But I can give you some guidelines to sort of suggest what might be a good solution for you. So some of the things I look for in these portable battery banks is some level of intelligence around overcurrent protection, over voltage protection, temperature sensing, things that would protect not only the battery bank, but the technology I'm going to charge from it. So it needs to be smart enough to have those technologies built in to protect the bank and the tech I'm going to charge from it. The second thing I like is a lot of the newer battery banks are smart enough to have what I'll call different personalities based on what I'm charging. So for example, if I connect it up to my phone, the battery bank will first do a little handshake technically with my phone to see what charge level it's at, how fast it can charge it safely, what kind of current and voltage it needs, and it makes an adjustment on the port to charge that phone in a very good way, in a very efficient and safe way. If I disconnect that phone and maybe connect up my controller from my quad, it does the same handshake and realizes that's charged at a lower voltage, doesn't need as much of a charge, and sends a smaller current to it. So that level of intelligence, that smarts of knowing that this device is different than that device is second thing I look for. So I want to make sure that number one, it's got the protections, and number two, it's smart enough to deliver a different charging profile for different devices that I'm going to connect up to it. The third thing I look for 
is a variety of connections because over the years there really haven't been a lot of standards. Everything changes it seems like every year. So you've got today three different standards. You've got the lightning connection for Apple. You've got a micro USB connection which is used on a lot of phones and electronic devices. And you've got USB-C. But even inside the USB-C which is the latest standard, there are a couple of different standards there. So you can have a quick charge standard. It's called QC, either 2.0 or 3.0. Or you could have a PD which is the power delivery system. Both of those are USB-C standards. There are also standards on USB-A. So it's important to have a wide variety of charging standards supported on the bank. And if I were building the perfect battery bank for me, I would stay somewhere around that 10,000 milliampere hours because there's no sense in you buying one that's 30 or 40 or 50,000 milliampere hours and coming back with a battery bank half charged. Nothing's more frustrating than that where I know now I've carried something bigger out in the field than I needed to charge the devices that I had with me that day. So for me, a 10,000 milliampere hour battery bank kind of comes back from the field most days almost exhausted. It's down to five or 10% because I've charged my phone, my controller, or maybe some other devices I've got with me, maybe my camera if I've got a GoPro or an Osmo with me, and I want to bring it back almost depleted. That's the perfect size for me. So 10,000 milliampere hours, I want to make sure that it's got protections built in so my devices aren't damaged by it. It should be smart enough. And then when I go to connections, I want to have at least one USB-A connection because that's the most common connection out there. And on that USB-A connection, charging current is super important because the voltage is the same on all of them. It's five volts for a USB-A connection, but the charging current can vary one amp, one and a half, two amps, 2.1, 2.4. A lot of the less expensive banks will only charge at an amp, which means if you're charging your phone, it's going to take you twice as long, maybe three times as long to charge that as it will in a bank that gives you two amps or two and a half amps. So make sure you can get the highest current possible from the USB-A connection. Then I'm also looking for a USB-C connection because a lot of the newer devices charge off a USB-C. And if it is a USB-C connection, I also want that to be hopefully QC compliant and PD compliant. So that would be the perfect battery bank, would be 10,000 milliampere hours, nice and slim so I can slide it in my pocket. If it's got a rubberized case on it, even better, because then if I drop it, I'm not gonna damage it. I wanna make sure it's got protections built in so it doesn't damage my devices. I wanna have smarts built in so it can do that profiling for whatever device it's gonna charge. And then finally, I want a USB-A connection with at least two amps of charging current and a USB-C Better yet, if it's QC compliant and PD compliant, because then I can charge some of the newer, bigger, power-hungry devices like tablets or laptops. So that would be my suggestion there. And there's a lot of manufacturers that make them. The last caution I'll give you is that there are a lot of brands out there you've never heard of, and you're probably not buying a great device from them. So I'd stick with some of the big brands that could be RAV Power, Zendur, Anchor, uh, Belkin's another one. So there's a lot of companies out there, but stick with a brand name. You're going to find exactly the battery bank you need, and it's going to probably cost you a little more than some of the off-brand stuff. But remember, that's a less expensive decision than damaging a $1,000 phone or an $800 tablet or who knows what you're charging. So just be smart about it, but that would be my recommendation there. So hopefully that's helpful. This week's burning question comes from John Williams in Santa Clara, California. And John wants to know, Rick, who picked a 400-foot limit for flying our quads? <laughs> That's a great question because 400 feet is an odd number. I mean, it's not 500 feet, so there has to be something behind that. And it turns out that the FAA has decided that commercial air traffic can't go under a 500-foot limit. So their floor is 500 feet. Unless they're landing or there's some emergency situation they have to deal with, they have to stay above 500 feet. 
So that makes perfect sense that as quad flyers, if we stay under 400 feet, that gives us a really nice 100 foot cushion between what we're doing and what they're doing above us because the last thing you want is to have your quad introduce itself to a commercial airliner. That would be a really bad situation. So standard 400 feet, nothing to worry about with the commercial traffic. Now having said that, there are situations where you can fly above 400 feet. So the FAA also gives guidance that says, if you're within 400 feet of a structure, could be a building or a tower, you can fly to the height of that structure plus 400 feet above that. So if you're near a building that's 1,000 feet, you can fly up to 1,000 feet and add 400 feet to it to go to 1,400 feet. Now, of course, you can't do that if you're in an NFZ zone or maybe you're in a restricted area, but if you're allowed to fly there, you can fly to the height of the building plus 400 feet. And for me, to be honest with you, 400 feet is plenty. I don't fly over 300 feet most days. Most of my filming is done between 100 and 200 feet because it gives me all the perspective I need. It gives me beautiful detail on whatever I'm filming, a forest or a beach or a building. I get great color at that height. Going up any higher, it just really is difficult to get that impressive picture. Now, there are times I have to go higher to sort of get a landscape of an area or I want to get a perspective on a building and the area around it. Or maybe I've got a great shot with something in the distance that I want to get. But that's a rare thing for me. That's maybe 15 or 20% of my flying. Most of my flying is done, like I said, around 200 feet, and that works out just great for me. I will recommend strongly that you respect that 400 foot. And I know that in the U.S. that's our limit. In other countries, maybe it's a little bit different. But if you're flying in the U.S., take the time, if your technology or your quad provides this, to dial in that ceiling. So go into the software, see if you can put a limit that you can't fly above 400 feet, and that'll just keep you safe so that you don't inadvertently, you're excited one day and you're going up higher and higher, and all of a sudden you cross that 400 foot level and you don't know it. If you limit it in the software, that'll at least keep you safe. But the last thing we need as a hobby is to have some unfortunate event where some Yahoo went up and flew to 560 feet and, and God forbid they impacted an airplane and then everything changes for us in the hobby. So respect the 400 feet. That's where it came from. And I think it's a sensible height. And again, for me, it doesn't really make the video any better or the pictures any better to get up that high. So for me, I stay around 200 feet and it just works out great. So that's pretty much it for this section. John, thanks an awful lot for that question. And if you guys have questions you wanna have answered on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at dronevalley.com. We'll collect them all up, we'll do the research, and we'll make sure we answer them in a future version of the podcast. That's pretty much it for this episode, and I hope you found that information interesting and helpful. I really have a lot of fun putting these together, so if you guys are enjoying them, we're gonna to continue to produce them. Now, our plans are to do at least two of them a month. I may bump that up to three or four if we start getting a lot of interest in these podcasts, and I've got a ton of topics I wanna to talk about that deal with drones and other high-tech gear, and we're gonna answer a lot of your burning questions on these podcasts. So if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find us on iTunes, Podbean, we're on Spotify. Subscribe to the channel, we start seeing that subscriber count go up. That's inspiring to us. We know we got to turn out more of these podcasts. But anyway, that's pretty much it for today. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, happy flying.